This is Malik. This is Mitchell. And welcome to The, the Art, Art of, of Washington. Washington. All right, here we have Maryland State Senator Antonio Hayes. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course. So um, before we started, you started reading a text message from, who was it? It, it was a gentleman that I know, I don't remember where I know him from, um, but he was concerned that he, it is his belief that Baltimore City is a lawless city and that we need to give people more harsher sentences. And so um, I, I agree that Baltimore has its challenges. I don't believe that we're a lawless city. I think there's a lot of great things happening in Baltimore. There's a lot of great people. Um, I think the media may overemphasize um, all of the negative things and don't necessarily highlight as many positive things that's going on. Um, we as lawmakers um, often, you know, we make laws to make sure that um, the public uh, will is served. Um, but there's several branches of government. There's the executive branch, the legislative branch in which we make laws, and there's the judicial branch. Um, I don't think, I do believe that the judicial branch should have the opportunity to um, have some flexibility and some discretion when applying sentences. I think in the, excuse me, late early, late 80s, early 90s, it was really popular for lawmakers to try to appease and patronize um, you know, their constituents to say, oh, we're going to do these mandatory minimum sentences. If you do this, you're going to do a mandatory five years, right? I think when people make the decision to sell drugs or to carry a gun, they recognize that there are risks involved. Some of those risks are more imminent than serving jail time. The risk of being robbed, the risk of being shot, all of those risks, they already know what the consequences are and they already do it. And so just by saying, if you have longer sentences, it will deter someone from committing a crime, I just think that's a false, that gives a false sense of hope. And to just have criminal justice system as the only intervention without identifying ways to address poverty and all the things that lead to crime and negative behavior, I think you're selling yourself short. And for far too long, um, here in Maryland and throughout our country, we really try to just arrest our way out of it or penalize people. And most of the time, the incarceration or um, the target of law enforcement has really been on communities of color, um, while at the same time, resources have been take, taken away from them and redirected to other places. It's a long answer to a short question. Oh, please, give please. all of the long <laughs> answers you need. So um, before we start digging deep into the questions, uh, I just want to preface the episode with what exactly you do as a state senator, so yep. if you could explain in great detail what okay. exactly your job consists of, whether it be everyday responsibilities or maybe stuff you don't get to do as often. Mm -hmm. or yeah, so, you know, lifelong resident of Baltimore City, grew up here in a little neighborhood called Pendorf off of Edna Whitelock Street. Um, I have had some extraordinary opportunities to serve. I never, growing up, I never thought that I would be a politician. I never thought I would be an elected official. That was never my aim. But I had an opportunity, I think, when I was in middle school 
to come to become involved in an after-school program called Youth United for Success. Youth United for Success, or Why Us? That program really encouraged us to be involved civically in our own community association, as well as in local um, politics, right? And so it wasn't until, uh, what was it, 1998, I was a so I was a junior in college at Frostburg State University, and I came home one summer, and I didn't have a summer job or anything, no real structured activity to do. And my cousin at the time um, encouraged me to come volunteer on a lady named Verna Jones, who was running for the House of Delegates campaign. And so I went to work with Verna, and I became in love with politics because I realized like all of the stuff that we were trying to do and change and make better in my community, there was communities just like mine throughout Baltimore and even more around the state and throughout the country, right? And here it is, these people who served in the House of Delegates or in the State Senate had a seat at the table to make policies and bring about change to address some of the things that had frustrated me growing up in the community. And so in 2014, I ran for the House of Delegates. I served four years. I did one term, which is four years in the House of Delegates. And then in 2000, and what was this? Uh, so we're in 20 now. So in 2018, I challenged my state center at the time. Um, and I won that election by 67, 67% of the vote, right? Um, my state center at the time has served 12 years. I had served four years. Um, but I think, you know, the, the residents of the district felt like they were yearning for something different. They was yearning for some new energy and um, different um, ideas on how to address issues. And so I took that campaign on. And so right now, and I serve in the state Senate, obviously, it's 47 members of the Maryland State Senate. Each senator represent um, their own district. Each district has one senator and three delegates. So you all, the four of you, represent the same amount of constituency, approximately 105,000 citizens, right? Um, and so I represent mostly West Baltimore and downtown Baltimore, including right here at BSA is a part of my legislative district. Um, I go from Central Park Heights over to Woodbury and Hamden, down 83 to Candom Yards, and out the county line, everything between Washington Boulevard and Wilkins um, tell you right before you get to our Arbutus in a community called Volleyville. And so um, we're a citizen legislature here in Maryland. Um, we go into our legislative session where we convene and start making laws for 90 days from January to April. But otherwise, we're out in the community talking to people, learning what the issues are, and hopefully in identifying what are the priorities for people in the community, we try to translate into policy ideas to best address the concerns of people that we represent in. Okay, so what are what are some significant policies that you have recently passed, or some um, significant ideas of policies that you'd be willing to pass um, as a absolutely as a senator? So my um, my biggest pride and joy was um, I think it was in two thousand sixteen. Um, I can't no two thousand seventeen. I introduced a piece of legislation. <clears throat> excuse me, called Keep the Door Open Act. Um, the Keep a Door Open Act really address what we refer to as behavioral health, both substance abuse and mental health. I grew up in a family where my mom has suffered from substance abuse for a long time. I recognize that, you know, we have, as a system, have really been trying to address the supply side, right? 
And so those guys and gals who are selling drugs, we try to arrest them and deal with it on the back end. We have not really addressed the problem in any proactive way on the front side and dealing with the demand side, and that's through treatment. If you treat people um, who are struggling with the addiction or the disease of, of, of addiction or, or, or substance abuse, um, you then take away the, you know, the demand side. You take away the demand, which feeds into the supply. And so I passed a piece of legislation. At the state of Maryland, and it's really you know wonky, but the state of Maryland provides a reimbursement to um, providers that provide substance abuse and mental health services. In, in many of the communities that I represent, people are very low income, and their primary source of health insurance is called Medicaid, or on the streets they call it medical assistance, right? And so with medical assistance, the state of Maryland is responsible for reimbursing a certain percentage to the providers of substance abuse and mental health. They had not increased that reimbursement for more than 20 years. So a lot of providers were getting frustrated. It was like, hey, look, yes, I'm an expert in substance abuse. Yes, I'm an expert in mental health, but the state of Maryland isn't compensating me with all of the other expenses that I have. And so I'm going to continue to see people that suffering from substance abuse and mental health. I'm just not going to see Medicaid patients, right? And so they were willing to shut the door because they weren't making enough money to sustain their practice. And so hence the name Keep the Door Open Act. We were able to pass legislation that provided for a 3.5 increase over the next five years, which translated into about $360 million um, to make sure that these providers were getting the, um, the, the, the reimbursement they needed. But more importantly, people that were struggling with substance abuse and mental health was getting the help they so desperately needed. <coughs> and when was this legislation passed? Uh, so I think the first time I tried to do it was, it took me two years. It was even 2016, 2017, and then it passed the next year. So maybe the first time I tried to introduce it was 2017 and it actually passed in 2018. So, um, <clears throat> What do you think makes a good senator? Uh, what I think makes a good senator is someone, I, what I think makes a good elected official, period, is someone that's willing to listen, right? Um, and especially in a city like Baltimore where we have so many challenges and people um, are often at the end of their rope and trying to find help. You gotta be able to be able to listen, but you also have to have the skills to communicate effectively, and tell your story that could convince other people to come along. Um, right now, like I said, there's 47 senators in the state Senate. There's only six. There's five that represent Baltimore and one that represent one-third of Baltimore and two-thirds Baltimore County. And so in order to get anything passed in the Maryland State Senate, you need 24 votes. And those six votes just aren't going to do it. And so a lot of times we find ourselves trying to convince our colleagues from Montgomery County and Prince George County and the Eastern Shore and Western Maryland on why it's important to invest in Baltimore and provide state funding to help us with our schools, to help us with transportation issues and you know public safety issues. And so I think a good senator is someone that who listens well and that's effective at building um, partnerships and um, people that's willing to collaborate with them.
So you're big on listening to the community and getting your ideas from them. Are there any, or have there have there has there ever been any um, legislation or any ideas that you think are like for for the greater good? Like, you know, some community members may not agree with it, but this is something that needs to happen, no matter what, hmm. regardless of you know public opinion. Right. So there is a. There, there's a lot of legislation that's like that, right? Um, one, there's a couple that I'm trying to recall off of the top of my head. But I, I just had an experience this upcoming legislative session. So Baltimore City has what they call a newly constructed tax, a new, new tax credit for newly constructed dwellings. So if you build new construction homes for homeowners, they pay 50% of their property tax in the first year, and then it graduates up 10% until the fifth year where you're paying 100% of your taxes. Looking at Baltimore City and where development is happening, especially new development, I see it really concentrated in only a limited amount of areas, and most of those areas are along the waterfront, whether it be you know very thriving communities with strong markets like Federal Hill and Fells Point and Locust Point. Um, but then I travel in, you know, into the heart of my district in West Baltimore and neighborhoods like Penn North and Sandtown and Harlem Park, and I don't see those neighborhoods being as prosperous, right? And so I believe if the government is going to offer tax credits, that there should be some equity. And we shouldn't be subsidizing housing in places where the market is strong enough where you don't need a tax credit because people are going to invest in them regardless because they're going to get a return on investment. I most recently, were, and, and so I introduced legislation to limit it to $500,000, right? And um, limited it to $500,000 would afford an opportunity to attract investment in other parts of the area. There are some people that believe that, um, you know, the amount of money that the city could potentially get off of attracting more wealthier people to Baltimore is worth giving a tax credit. And so there's a little bit of agreement. And one, one piece of legislation that I introduced last year on behalf of the administration is probably one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that I introduced. You're all familiar with Johns Hopkins University. Johns Hopkins University wanted their own police department, right? And so a lot of people in the community was like, well, we're already, you know, already over police for some of the same reasons that I just articulated. Why would we pay for a, why would we authorize a private police force? Because Johns Hopkins is a private university. I had to look at it from all perspective. Johns Hopkins is a private university, but it's also one of the largest employers and it attract many, many bright minds right here to our city that can help with other things. And if they are, if they are perceived or are real, or they can't, protect their students, their staff, and the people that's visiting them, people will stop coming to Baltimore. And so it was a really tough decision on my part. I think when we, and, and part of the legislative process, you almost never get the end result that you started with. And so we um, took the proposed piece of legislation. I think we made over 40-something amendments to it. We want to make sure that if we're going to create another police department, that there was checks and balances. And so... Um, we put a sunset on there in legislative language. That means after a certain period of time, the 
the authority to operate goes away. And so we put a 10-year sunset, sunset, giving them an opportunity to get their own police force and then seeing how successful it is. If it doesn't provide the results or if it um, provides more problem than good, it goes away. They no longer have the authority in 10 years. We also put some protections in there to make sure that they weren't um, protected by like local claims act. So one way to hold people accountable is hitting their pocketbook, right? And so with, with Baltimore City Police, State Police, they're government entities. And so by law, there's a cap. If, if you were a victim of police brutality by, by the Baltimore Police Office, by the police, Baltimore Police Department, there's a limit by law for which you could sue the government um, as far as tort claims or whatever. Um, because Johns Hopkins is a private institution, we didn't want them to try to take advantage of those same protections that's provided for public institutions. And so we made sure in the legislation that it um, that we there was no limit to those tort claims. Also, we wanted to make sure that this private police force didn't trickle too far into some of the community. So Hopkins had three properties they really wanted to focus on. They had the Homewood campus that's right up here uh, off of 83. They had Peabody, which is right down the street here from BSA on Center Street. <coughs> Excuse me. And then they had the hospital campus over in East Baltimore. And so we wanted to make sure that the geographic boundary by which these this police force would patrol was very close and defined in the law um, and making sure that they was confined to the properties that they are responsible principally responsible for protecting. But that was a very controversial piece of legislation. I still get uh, text messages, tweets um, all the time about people not happy that I was part of authorizing um, a, a private police force. But for me, I think, um, and, and I, I got a lot of support letters, I got a lot of bad, a lot of letters in opposition but I think it's really important for us as state legislators to look at the greater whole and especially understand all the intricacies and the details to make the right decision that we feel um, would be in the best interest of the people we serve. So within the Senate, was that very controversial? Like, was it a split decision? Or It was, it was. It was even a split decision amongst um, the senators themselves. As I explained to you, we have six senators that represent Baltimore City. One of those six represent only a portion of Baltimore City and the remainder of Baltimore County. The vote was split. It, it was probably <clears throat> one of the most divided uh, pieces of legislation that we voted on. So I think the vote came down to four to, four to two, or let me see, one, two, three. Yeah, so, oh. Someone had to abstain, so uh, it was actually three to two vote. Um, and so even, and so typically, whatever happens within the confines of a committee, you usually support whatever outcome is. But I found myself, even after we had voted on it, our side had prevailed, once the bill got to the floor, there was still a lot of debate and going back and forth between you know, myself and some of my other colleagues that represent Baltimore City. And like I said, that happened last year. Um, we're still getting um, people who are quite upset with those decisions.
So um, I really want to ask this question since our last two um, invitees we couldn't get to ask because they were running. <laughs> but um, who do you think you'll be voting for if you do oh, for mayor? Oh, goodness gracious. So that's a tough question for me, right? So, you know, I'm Baltimore boy. I love my city. I wanted to make sure that we have the right person that's going to lead us, um, that's going to be able to manage the city. You know, prior to being an elected official, I also served as assistant deputy mayor for the city of Baltimore from 2007 to 2010. And it's, it's a tough job running Baltimore, right? And so I remember many, many times serving as assistant deputy mayor. I had some tough agencies that I work with, whether it be the police department, fire department, labor. I spent a lot of nights at that time. <clears throat> we didn't have smartphones, right? We had um, Blackberries. Do you guys remember Blackberries? I do. Mm-hmm. You, I remember, I remember oh, okay. Blackberries. I do. Right. So probably Blackberries was the closest thing that you was going to get to a smartphone, but it had like that keyboard across it mm-hmm. or whatever. And I used to have to carry a Blackberry as assistant deputy mayor. And every time somebody in the city of, Bal- city of Baltimore was shot or murdered, I would get a notification on my phone, no matter what time of the night it was or whatever. And so it, it was challenging, right? And, you know, being the mayor is not a part-time job. You're always on. And so whether it means, you know, it's not like a job you go to and from 9 to 5, you're like, all right, guys, I'm done, and I go home. They expect the mayor to be on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even on holidays or whatever. Um, for the three years that I served in the mayor's office, um, I never got a chance to spend time with my family on Christmas Day, New Year's Day, Easter Day, because all of those were big days here in the city. And so I would spend a lot of those um, nights in a watch center um, with other city agencies in case something happened in the city, you know, around New Year's time. There's a lot of people that shoot random guns in the air and stuff like that. And so I would have to be down there with the police and other city agencies so at any given moment we could mobilize resources to address those things. And so I really, really want a mayor that um, understands what the job is, who's a good manager that can manage the job, but also be a good communicator and, and, and be a great cheerleader for our city. Um, Right now, there's a lot of talented people in a race, and there's some people with not so much talent in a race. Uh, but I haven't decided who I'm going to support, but hopefully I get to that point at some time. <coughs> All right. I do want to um, – you did say as assistant deputy mayor that you would get a notification that every time someone was <coughs> – excuse me – murdered in uh, Baltimore City that you would you, you, you would get that notification. Yep. So I want to ask you, um, with respect to that, uh, I want to switch to a topic, the topic of, of gun violence. Yeah. Uh, how, what exactly, I would, what, what is your opinion on gun violence? How do, how do you feel about it? So gun violence is obviously a problem here in Baltimore. That's how, that's how we're having, you know, 300 or more people murdered each year and thousands of people um, victims of non-fatal shootings. A lot of times we talk about the homicide because it's really hard to lose somebody, but we have triple the amount of time, triple amount of people who are shot. And because we have some of the best hospitals and best medical systems that the world has to offer, um, our hospitals save a lot of people from that fatal um, entity of death. I think in Baltimore, we have a serious problem with illegal guns. 
Um, and so a lot of times in legislatures here in Maryland and throughout the country, you will hear people talk about gun control, putting tighter restrictions on folks who um, would otherwise be lawful um, owners, but they want to limit the amount of guns or weapons those people have opportunities to. I think for us here in Baltimore, the gun violence is really um, being perpetuated by not lawfully um, licensed owners. It's being perpetuated by people who are getting guns through illegal means. What, you know, I was talking to a group of young people the other day and they was telling me um, we should really do something about closing down these gun stores in Baltimore because of the gun violence. Would, and I asked them, would you be surprised to know there's not a single gun store in the city of Baltimore? There's not one, except with the exception of there's a store at the corner of President and, uh, what is that, President like Fayette Street across from police headquarters. It's called the Cop Shop. They do have ammunition, and I believe they sell weapons as well, but they only sell to cops. But we don't have a single gun shop that sell to the public here in the city of Baltimore, but we still have so many people having access to guns. And, and most of the time, they're getting those guns through illegal means. They're not going down to be fingerprinted and going through a hand, handgun um, qualification um, tests or training. They're getting them in illegal means. And so I think one of the things that we're proposing in this upcoming legislative session is really dealing with um, the flow and the access to illegal guns in our community. So, um, as you know, we're sitting in a school. Yep. So, with respect to that, um, is there any legislation you're planning to pass or that you've already passed regarding education in Baltimore City? Right. So, for me, I've been a excuse me huge proponent of behavioral health, as I explained to you. I think we have a lot of schools where young people are going through a lot of trauma and having access to mental health and substance abuse services is really important. But this legislative session, the single most important piece of legislation that will be considered is um, a piece of legislation that was introduced today. Um, it's the result of three years of a lot of people meeting um, in a group called the Carowin Commission, and they've come up with these recommendations, which has led to Senate Bill 1000, which deals with, and it's called the Blueprint for Maryland's Future. It will, this piece of legislation alone will determine how we fund public education for the next 10 years. It's a $3 billion investment that the state and our local jurisdictions um, will have to put up a certain match to. But it's looking at how do we address public education in a meaningful way. If you look at Maryland, Maryland is in the middle of pack, in the middle of the pack of the 50 states within the United States of America and within our union. The United States is in the middle of the pack globally, right? So if you look at the achievement, um, achievement attainability level of our young people here in, here in Baltimore, here in Maryland, we're in the middle of the pack in the middle of the pack. And so we're not as competitive as, say, young people in Singapore or Canada or other places where they are really stressing education. 
the Kerwin Commission and the blueprint um, for Maryland's future is really focusing on how do we deal with public education away and addressing the policies that help get our kids further along. Part of the debate the other day was Algebra 2. Like, do young people really need Algebra 2 to say that they are going to be a successful student? Or are we still dealing with the fact that we're educating our young people based off of the same educational curriculum that once was formed to qualify young people to work on a farm, right? And so why aren't we teaching our young people computer science in pre-kindergarten? And, and then when they get into third and fifth grade, teaching them how to program and how to code and stuff like that. We need to start preparing our young people for the jobs of the future. We also have gotten into this thing where we've really put a lot of focus on going to a four-year school um, for you know college, but we've lost opportunities in career technology education where young people learn skills that's going to help them get a job after work. And so we need to go back to some more of those, um, you know, manufacturing or, or things where young people have skills that aren't tied to just reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so the blueprint for Maryland's future it was introduced today, it's by far the most important piece of legislation that we're going to consider in this upcoming legislative session. And what about more practical uh, skills that aren't really teached in schools, such as filing taxes or writing a check or um, buying a house or a mortgage, stuff like that? No, absolutely. I'm not sure to what extent that's in there, but part of the suggestions that was made while Kerwin was to give more flexibility for school districts to make adjustments to better educate their young people. Right now, um, by law, it's very rigid in what we can um, provide for students that's coming through our public school system. But in order for us to be competitive, we have to look at um, how we're educating our young people in a different way. And we have to be the incubators of innovation right and so i i get a chance to travel I, I represent 59 schools here in baltimore city and i get a chance to visit and talk to young people all the time and if you just sit back sometimes and listen to young people they're some of the brightest minds we have in society there I've, I've run into fifth graders that are have an intellect that's greater than a lot of adults that i deal with right <coughs> excuse me and so in our education system, we need to provide an opportunity where young people are able to explore and use their imagination and innovation. I mean, it's six o'clock on a Friday, and you two here as ninth graders are still at school working on a project that you guys are dedicated to um, expanding beyond you know, your regular old coursework. I think we need to allow the space and opportunity for all students in our system to to do that, to you know, to explore and go beyond just like the sitting in the classroom and have someone talking at you. So, um, with regards to that, are you saying that the the system in general of education and kids receiving what they need to go out in life, quote unquote, needs to be uh, updated for more modern times? Yes. I say? Absolutely. I think our current education 
system, as I said, was built off of preparing young people to be able to go work on the farm. Um, reading, writing, and arithmetic, that's all you needed um, back then. But um, nowadays, there are emerging technologies that our system isn't necessarily, we've been piecemealing, like, you know, at some schools in the system, you might have an ingenuity program or they might add on uh, extra, an advanced class in math, but, you know, we're not really preparing young people um, for some of the critical thinking exercises that they need. You know, when I went to school, which is far different probably what you guys experience now, it was pretty much a teacher sitting in the front of the classroom and everyone had to be quiet and, you had, and the teacher was talking at us, right? I go to schools now and you see a lot of young people working in group settings, you know, challenging each other to um, collaborate on ideas. When you go out into the workforce, a lot of times you find yourself in these dynamics where it's going to take a team to work together to achieve those things. And so I believe, like, as um, the work world has evolved, um, some in some instances, our educational system has been stagnant in its growth. Yes. So staying on the topic of education and going a little bit back to gun control, would you say you're a fan of some of the more extreme solutions to gun control um, in schools, like metal detectors at the front door and security guards posted at every entrance and exit of the school? No, I think things like security and guys with guns and metal detectors, I think it oftentimes give people a false sense of security. Um, obviously, we want all of our young people to be protected and stuff like that. And in cases where those things are necessary, but I think those type of decisions should be made as a whole community, right? And it should be students, it should be uh, faculty, staff, administrators, and the community at large, those people who are outside of these walls of what we call a school building, right? Um, so in some cases, yeah, that stuff is necessary because you want to make sure that you're creating uh, a safe environment, but um, I think there's a limit to it. Um, what you can do and you have to balance that and I don't think that we should be pushing those things on everybody that that should be um, a community decision and the, when I say community I define that broadly internally and externally to a school community. All right so I had a question I just forgot it. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to ask you this question. Um, First of all, I'm going to start with this. Do you have any um, kids, maybe? No kids. No kids. I have a ton of nieces and nephews, but no kids. Mm. Um, well, for your I was just married in July, you know. Oh, congratulations. I'm, I'm old school. I, I believe in, you know, Wait. marriage, and then we have kids. So we're working on it. Well, um, for, your, for your nieces and nephews, do you think, um, well, first of all, do they go to school? Do some of them go to school in Baltimore City? All of them go to school in Baltimore City. Do you? Nope. Hold on, I have one nephew or one niece, I think, that go to school outside of Baltimore City. But I have, the, let's say the majority of them go to school in Baltimore City. For the ones that go to school in Baltimore City, uh, we've already talked about safe, uh, safety concerns in mm -hmm. our schools. Do you think 
would you feel safe mm-hmm. sending okay, your future child? Your, fu- to your future child, would right. you feel safe sending your future child to school in Baltimore City with respect to everything that's happened, happened, or and happening? Right. Um, that, that's a good question because my wife and I are talking about this now because we are preparing to have kids, right? And so one of the things that we've talked about is making sure that prior to us having kids, that the school is ready to receive our kid. And so we're about to start getting very much involved. As a matter of fact, on Monday, I'm meeting with the principal of our local elementary school and and trying to get an idea of how we could be helpful, right? Uh, And so I think it's the responsibility of all of us whether you're a teacher inside the school or principal inside the school, is responsible. Um, whether you have a child at that school or you don't have a child at that school, all of us have a role to play. And I think if, you know, I want to be able to send my kid to a school and leave and go to work and feel comfortable and confident that my child is safe and receiving a quality education. And so without having any kids today, we're beginning along that journey to make sure that the schools that they would have available to them are in a secure and safe atmosphere to provide kind of that, um, that environment for them to be successful. All right. And staying on the topic of kids and young people, um, how would you encourage young activists to sort of take action and maybe if they want to get in contact with their local legislators um, how do you suggest they do that maybe email letter call etc mm-hmm. one thing about Baltimore elected officials um, ex- well in Baltimore more so like their local elected officials are a lot more accessible City Hall is just a walk down the street their meetings are always publicized. Um, it's easy to attend a commu- uh, uh, um, city council meeting. I think it's really important that young people in the community, um, whatever your interest is, in some way, politics is going to affect it. And so whether it's email, whether it's reaching out to them on social media, I would definitely encourage young activists to let their voices be heard, to communicate with the people that are a part of the power establishment. Because whether it's now nor in the future, politics will have a, I mean, it affects all of our lives, right? And so I would, like, part of the problem is, though, um, you, we as politicians, we know who our most, you know, we know who's responsible for our existence, right? We depend on votes. And so the more votes that we could get, the more likely we are to be reelected. And I think I told you right before we went on the air, my average voter is 65 years old and an African-American female, right? Um, nine times out of 10, a lot of young people who are well-educated, who are very conscious about their communities and their environment a lot of times and there's no blame or no judgment but 
they are not represented in um, in proportionality to the you know older people that go out to vote. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a special election on Tuesday, so. I made sure I left a nap. We don't go into session until 8 p.m. on Mondays. I left Annapolis about 10.30, got back to Baltimore about 11.30. I was at the polling plate. The polling place opened up at 7 o'clock. I was there by 7.10. I was by far, and I'm 42 years old, I was by far the youngest person in there out of the 12 people that was in there by 30 years. Everyone else was far older than I was, but they, you know, older people will come out to vote because, and I think that's largely part two, they aren't far removed from the struggles where they know people or remember people or had people in their family that had the challenges and where they didn't have the opportunity to vote. So to honor that legacy of you know, what they even experienced themselves or other people around them have experienced, they value that a lot more. I think the more time that began to exist between the times of uh, Jim Crow laws where our vote was suppressed and <clears throat> we have access to more things in society, um, the importance seemed to have dissipated a little bit. And so, but it's, it's I mean, it, it sounds a tad bit cliche, but voting is one of the most powerful tools you have to bring about change. I will tell you, and I am a big person who relies on data and statistics. If you look at neighborhoods that are quote unquote safe and walkable and thriving and the market is strong, they have the highest concentration of voters. The neighborhoods that um, look neglected, that doesn't appear to, um, that anyone cares, where you may find trash on the street or guys selling illicit drugs on the neighborhood, those are communities where the voter participation is much lower. Right. And so there's definitely a correlation between your participation and actually going out to vote and the results and priorities you get from the people that are. In power. All right. So um, we're going to start wrapping this up. Cool. So is there is there anything you'd like to say to the city of Baltimore or the state of Maryland? Sure. Um, so I'm always shameless self-promoting. And so uh, to... Yes, he uh, brought his papers. That's right. And so I put out a, a, a newsletter at least once a year um, to all of my constituents just so they can get an idea of some of the things that I was able to get accomplished in working on their behalf. But to find out more information, you can always visit me at www.antoniohayes.com. Um, if you'd like to receive updates on what we're doing in the office and various pieces of legislation that may be important to you, if you go to AntonioHayes.com, there is a link to receive updates. I would encourage you to log your email in so you could get um, consistent updates from us. 
We also, each senator and delegate, um, each legislative district give away about a quarter million dollars in scholarships every year. And I will tell you, for a senator scholarship, if you are accepted for one of my scholarships, you get a scholarship for four years. And this is for anyone who's looking to go to a two-year or four-year institution. It doesn't matter. It just has to be a school within Maryland. Um, but every single person that apply, they get a scholarship. All you have to do is apply. Um, now, how much you get depends on the amount of effort that you put into your application. But you could go to my website, www.antoniohayes.com, and get access to scholarship money. And we, you know, we will make sure if you apply, you definitely get a scholarship to go to school. I see you're working to protect Obamacare. Exactly. Man, that's controversial. Absolutely. But, you know, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, which is the technical name, has provided health care to millions of Americans who wouldn't otherwise have access to health care. In some countries, you know, having access to health care is more of a right than a privilege. In America, because we live in a capitalist society, um, insurance companies and others have found a way to monetize um, health care. And so uh, sometimes health care could be very expensive. The Affordable Care Act was the first um, attempt in a long time to make sure that all Marylanders or all citizens of the United States have access to the quality health care that they need. All right. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, well, thank you, guys. This has been awesome. It's been good hanging out with you guys, um, you know, talking a little bit. There's not a lot of young people that uh, would be spending their Friday afternoon talking about politics. Um, I talk about it quite frequently. But for me, it's really, you know, one of the things I learned as a young freshman at Frostburg in my political science class is politics are the means by which, you know, you determine determine public resources, who gets what, where, when, and why. And so, um, and my grandmother used to always have this saying, um, if you if you aren't doing what you need to do, um, you, you'll have two options. You're either at the table or on a menu. And I would much rather be at the table when decisions are like this are being made as opposed mm -hmm. to being on a menu and having people select things for me. That is a great that analogy. Is, yes. That analogy is wonderful. Well, we do thank you Absolutely. for being here again, um, taking time out of your schedule to come and sit with us. Yes. Um, we do appreciate it. He was one of my fast responses, y'all, when I emailed him. <laughs> Let me just put that out there now. He was one of the fast responses. He was very um, flexible. Yes, very flexible. Um, again, we do thank you. And you heard it here, everyone. Yeah. All right, Senator Antonio Hayes, don't forget District 40. And I look forward to bring, to you guys bringing this podcast to Annapolis. One day. <laughs> this is Malik. This is Mitchell. And this has been The, the Art, Art of, of Washington. Washington.